Okay, uh, what are some of the things you saw here? This is, I should say, this uh, Lost in Translation is a compilation of different experiences. I don't know of any time it, all these things happened in one time, but they all have happened. Fortunately, to my knowledge, the last one hasn't happened to us where we didn't get invited back because uh, we were so unclear. But in a way, you never know, you know. <laughs> so um, what are some of the things you see, issues related to interpretation and translation? Yes. Okay, good, yeah. I'll uh, try to repeat them for the tape. Uh, the first comment was that, that it's best not to use complex sentences because it makes interpretation difficult. What else? Yes. Also, in other languages, you know, the verb comes at the very end of the sentence, and if you give a partial sentence, they may not even be able to translate any of it until they get the whole Good, that was verb order is different in different languages, and if you don't give the whole sentence, the person may not have the verb to translate. Yes. Okay, you always want to try to meet with the translator ahead if you can. Paul? Okay, so planning so you get in, even if it takes you a little more uh, hotel costs and things, get in a little early so you're sure you have time to meet with the translator and learn more about the audience. Yes. Okay, thank you. Yeah, um, especially for North Americans and Western Europeans, if you start late, you're really flustered usually where a lot of cultures, no problem, you know. They're not worried. <laughs> yes, Arnie. Okay, the expected interpreter may not know all the terminology, may need to ask you. Okay, in, in assessing learning, uh, body language may not mean the same in other languages, like head bobbing may not mean they understand. Maybe they're just being nice, being polite. You know. Yes? Okay, yeah, in North America we're usually taught to start with a joke and it doesn't always translate well. In fact, I, I heard one story where uh, someone gave a talk and found out later, they started with a joke and they found out later that the interpreter had said, I don't really know what they said, but I think it was a joke, so everybody laugh. <laughs> Probably a, one of our cultures that is very hospitable and just wants you to feel comfortable. Yes, anybody, any other things? Yes. Okay, a cultural knowledge, so you know things that are taboo to mention or how to bring up different things. Good. Yes, John. Figures of speech also sometimes that we do. Okay, what do you see in the case study that brought up the idea about figures of speech being a problem? Just the idea, again, of actually even people nodding sometimes or thinking they understood what you said. 
Okay. Yeah, and I, I purposely put in that thing about a home run and a grand slam, you know. Uh, sports terminology, things that are unique to our culture don't always translate. Not all countries play baseball, for example. Okay. Anything else anybody wants to bring up? Yes, Paul. There's some handouts over there, too. Yes, in many cultures, uh, you probably know, students are at a much lower uh, status level, I guess you'd say, than the professor. It's not polite usually to ask questions. Uh, they may uh, be afraid to either indicate you were unclear, which causes you to lose face, or to ask you a question. If you can't answer it, you may lose face. So whatever we can do to make people comfortable and equalize the status and and help them understand we really do want questions. We're not just saying that. Yes. Yeah. The presenter could have asked some questions once in a while along the way to see if they were grasping. Okay, use of questions to assess uh, how you're doing, getting some feedback. Good. Anything else? Okay, well, uh, this is really not rocket science, as you can see. And uh, probably if we just spent a little more time on the case study, you could come up with all the different things. I'm going to talk about, uh, I did base this on a study of the literature, though, on uh, translation and interpretation. So it has a little more validation, I hope, than uh, just individual anecdotal type things. But uh, I think it's good to start by thinking of all the different possibilities. Before I forget, I wanted to mention some books that might be of interest to you. One is called Teaching in a Distant Classroom. We have this actually in the CMDA bookstore, but you can get it. Uh, easily uh, on Amazon and other places. It's by Romanofsky and McCarthy. I'll leave them down here if you want to look at them later. Another good one is called Teaching Abroad, International Education in the Cross-Cultural Classroom. This is harder to get because it's published by Hong Kong University Press. But if you teach in Asia, it's particularly targeted at teaching in China. And it's not so much on teaching English. It's uh, more university level and above. So I found that particularly useful. More general books, uh, Cross-Cultural Servanthood by Dwayne Elmer is uh, particularly good for preparing teams to have a, a servant attitude and not come across as, you know, kind of know-it-all Americans or North Americans. And then Leading Across Cultures. If you're a team leader, this was recently written by Jim Pluteman, who's a professor at Trinity but was a missionary for about 10 years and led an international mission organization for a long time. So those are all useful books. I'd like to start by talking about some background, and then I'll cover each of these issues briefly. And feel free to, to chip in uh, ideas at any time and contribute because obviously we have lots of experience here. I feel like I'm preaching to the choir rather than the, the novel uh, the students who haven't had that experience. So. Well, just quickly on background, we all know how important it is to communicate well in uh, medicine. We don't want to have miscommunication, and we know how dangerous it can be for our patients. And then all these other things are increasing the need to use translators 
People are moving back and forth between countries, studying in other countries more. Teachers are going to many different places and often don't know the language if they're there for a short time. And as different medical systems modernize, they're often inviting people from other countries in to help them uh, think about some new ideas and change their system. So these are some of the things that cause us to need this. And then if you're a, a native English speaker and you've ever gone to England or Australia or New Zealand, you probably know we can be two countries separated by a common language, we like to say. And uh, even when you speak the same language, you can have a hard time communicating. But if you're communicating through a translator into another language and culture, it's much more likely there'll be a problem. And another issue is that in most developing countries, the only type of translator, and this was reflected a little in the case study, was uh, uh, they're usually trained to do international conferences for political or business reasons. And uh, there aren't that many trained medical interpreters who really know medical terminology. So that uh, can, can contribute to the difficulties. And I think the next thing is that... Uh, Obviously, not everybody who speaks another language can be an interpreter. It takes special skills. There, there's some people, uh, even very young people, who are very good at it naturally. This young lady is a medical student who was my translator in Korea a week or two ago, and uh, she just did a great job. I thought she was from here. But uh, at least they seemed to understand everything I was saying. <laughs> but we, we've seen that isn't always always the case, but uh, not everyone has that gift, and particularly having interpreter training is good. It's very hard to hear something in one language and immediately say it in another, and uh, especially when you have to go in both directions and interpret writing, which is different than interpreting speaking. And uh, just to clarify, I think, you know, interpretation is verbal translation, and uh, translation is used for like translating your slides, written things. And this is a guideline in a UN document. Uh, I find it's often uh, violated in a lot of countries because they don't have a lot of translators, and sometimes someone ends up being the translator for the whole day all week. But uh, this is a guideline you can use if you get to hire your own translators, which is a, often a good idea, and uh, uh, give them a reasonable workload so they're not so tired they are having trouble translating. And then we talked a little bit about the impact of culture. The next slide will talk a little more about high and low context culture, but is anybody familiar with that concept, high and low context culture, that you could explain it? Okay, uh, cultures of the world are, this was originally by Edward Hall, Edward T. Hall, but it's in quite a few publications now. They've basically broken cultures into a spectrum of low to high context. And low context is like a North American culture where basically you can't assume people know anything by what, what you uh, do with body language or something. You have to be explicit. You're not, uh, they're in a context, but the context is not affecting their understanding very much. Where in other cultures, particularly like Japan, uh, some of the Asian countries, a lot of the Middle Eastern and Central Asian countries, uh, if you're part of that culture, only a small thing needs to be said, and it says a lot, and people know what it means. So if you're an outsider, you need help with that. But uh, this affects translation a lot because uh, you need to uh, 
uh, give a lot more explanation a lot of times than they would normally have, and your translator needs to give you more than they would give their country, uh, country men and women. And then we already talked about culture-specific terms like uh, baseball and things. Uh, also, customs and folk practices, it helps. I think a lot of you have worked in, in situations where there's folk medicine, and it's very helpful to have people who know about that and can translate it. In some cultures, it's considered uh, embarrassing, I guess you'd say, to, to say people rely on those things, and they may not want to tell you those things, but it's important to know about those if you're going to do medicine because they're widely used. Uh, proper formality, especially in cultures that have a lot of honorifics like Japan, Korea, um, it's important to have a translator who can take what you say and put it at the proper level of formality. Pauses also vary in different languages, so you may need to uh, uh, get some, uh, some help in knowing how long you should wait between what you say and then how to express agreement and disagreement. It's very indirect in high-context co high cultures, and uh, the translator needs to be able to do it in a way that uh, doesn't cause you to uh, you know, be too... Be seen as too alienating. Yes, Maria. Yes, I thought I had a illustration, but I guess I don't. Um, high context is um, a lot of the world, like uh, Central Asia, a lot of Africa, a lot of Asia, where uh, if you're part of the culture. I had a slide, actually, it showed, I don't know what happened to it, but it showed a man just going, and his, his uh, wife getting a translation, you know. He said, you know, he's really unhappy that you didn't clean the house and all these other things, but he was expecting her to, to uh, understand that. One example I can give you is I used to live, uh, I shared a house with an Asian um, colleague, and uh, one day she said something like, it's garbage day tomorrow or, or the garbage needs to go out tonight or something like that. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's true. And she meant I should be taking out the garbage. I wasn't taking it out enough, but I didn't get it because, you know, if I were from her culture, that would be a, a strong hint that I wasn't taking it, I wasn't doing my part. But, you know, I, I had to say, well, you need to tell me directly because I don't get it. And uh, it's a little hard to explain. Some of you, I know you're from high context. How many, any of you who have been in that situation can explain it a little better? Yes, go ahead, Don. Yeah, the more you go to these cultures, you'll learn more about them and they'll learn more about you. And especially international students who have studied here are very good at knowing our ways. But basically, high-context cultures do rely a lot more on nonverbal behavior and just little hints. And if you grew up there, you know what that means. But if you didn't, we tend to need somebody to tell us pretty directly what they're trying to communicate. And you'll find a lot of times when you're trying to planning in, plan in these contexts, you know, you get these kind of vague uh, 
vague emails and things, and you're not sure exactly what they want, but they think, you know, they're telling you clearly. So a lot of it is just cultural. Thelma? I mean, no. Anne? <laughs> Yeah, that's another really important thing uh, to learn as much as you can about nonverbal behavior, uh, not touching people unless you know it's okay. In some countries, you shouldn't touch women's hair, for example. And uh, depending what part of the country you're from, we can be more touchy-feely than a lot of countries. And then other countries, you know, always kiss on the cheeks or hug, and that can make North Americans kind of uncomfortable. I think uh, you may remember President Bush when he was in Saudi Arabia. He was holding hands with the Saudi leader, and that got all kinds of adverse publicity in the U.S. What a terrible thing, men holding hands. Well, it doesn't mean you're gay or anything like that in the Middle East. That just is a sign of friendship. So uh, being careful not to misinterpret nonverbal behavior and know that you may not know what their nonverbal behavior means if you don't know the context. If you're there a long time, you know, living there many years, you'll gradually get it. Any other comments on that? Yeah, is that a little clearer? Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a little hard to explain. And it's also a spectrum, both individually within a country. Some people, like I was saying, especially people who, say, have been in the West but are from a high-context culture, they may be very good at interpreting both directions. And then uh, some cultures, especially like uh, certain European cultures, are probably the lowest context. You have to be extremely direct. We're a little more moderate than Hispanic is more high context. Most Asian and Central Asian are high context in the Middle East. So uh, the longer you spend there, the more you'll know. But if you're just going in to speak once or once a year, uh, it's good to read books, but you also have to take those into, uh, take them with a grain of salt. I, before I went to Korea a couple of weeks ago, I read this book about thinking Korean. And then I talked to one of my classmates about it, and it was way out of date. You know, it was like Korea in the 1950s. It was saying, don't look Koreans in the eyes, and, you know, always look down. And uh, it was totally incorrect. Everybody acted very differently. So you have to be careful that you're getting good, uh, good information. Even when you try to prepare well, you can get some some bad information or out of date. Things are changing so quickly, too, with globalization that lots of people are more uh, experienced in our type of low-context culture than they would if they were at home. Any, any th other input here? If you have any good examples of anything, too, please go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, that's a comment about uh, it can be very difficult for Chinese and other people from high-context cultures to enter our system of education. For example, uh, the uh, program I'm in, we have a lot of internationals, and particularly Asians, it's very uncomfortable for them to be called on in class and have to give a, a, you know, a direct answer. They usually like to be kind of quiet and listen, and they may get a little more comfortable as they get to know you in sharing, but uh, putting them on the spot is not usually done in a, in a high-context culture, and particularly when a high-status professor does that. You know, it can cause a lot of stress. So 
uh, it works both ways, I guess, is, is the main point. Great, thanks. Uh, here's just the risk of uh, miscommunication. You can read this, but, you know, it's particularly dangerous, of course, in medicine. And uh, we need to try to do what we can to tell when we're being clear and when it's being lost in translation. And then this is actually uh, from, there are a lot of studies done on the use of trained medical interpreters. Unfortunately, there's almost nothing written on the use of medical interpreters in teaching medicine internationally. So this actually comes from studies about using trained medical interpreters to talk with patients from other language groups and cultures. But you can see in this situation, it, as you would expect, uh, decreases the difficulties you have and makes things clearer and uh, improves outcomes and uh, decreasing the misuse of medications and that kind of thing. There, there are a lot of studies on this, but uh, even though it hasn't been studied in t medical teaching, I think it's likely to apply there too. And also when you do medical teaching, you often are not only teaching your colleague, but you may be doing clinical teaching where you're also talking to patients. So it also applies in that situation. And there are actually some standards now defined for trained medical interpreters. They're kind of disturbing to me in a way because they require very little training, sometimes as little as 40 hours uh, of taking a lay person who knows that language and teaching them some medical terminology. And the testing to become a certified interpreter is a written translation of two paragraphs. So, you know, you, if you speak another language, you probably know you may be able to translate something in writing you couldn't in speaking, especially immediately. So I'm not that confident that the, the standards are where they should be. But even with that low standard, there's a lot of evidence that it helps a lot over using, a, you know, a family member or, or uh, someone who doesn't know anything about medicine. So I'm hoping in time we'll have a little bit more thought towards uh, what should be the standards for trained interpreters. This is an excellent trained uh, medical interpreter. I'll read it for the tape. Uh, the new surgery interpreter was to prove invaluable. The patient says, it's my back, doc. The pain is unbearable. And the interpreter says, he's booked a midweek rugby trip and his mate, so he wants a sick note. Actually, though, it's the trained in medical interpreters are trained to tell you exactly what the patient says because they shouldn't really embroider it. You know, that's their interpretation, but you want to get as direct translation as possible. So this is a joke, but uh, it does kind of allude to other factors in the social situation and culture that you may need to know about that the patient may not tell you about. Okay, these are... Uh, kinds of situations that require interpreters. A lot of you have spoken at international conferences, and they often have simultaneous translation, which is much harder to do, where people are wearing headsets and getting simultaneous translation. Uh, even in a lot of these settings, at least the ones I've been in, even though they were professional interpreters, I, I left not really understanding what the presentation was about. So uh, I don't think we're doing a great job even when it's planned in advance and professionals are hired. And then when you go into new teaching situations, you may or may not have control over hiring your own interpreters, uh, saying in advance what kind of experience you'd like to have in your interpreter. So in international teaching, and then we just talked about patient care. Any other situations you all can think of? Yes, Anne. Yeah. 
French and English going on constantly. And we were two interpreters, or translators, and interpreters. Um, and um, we were told, we were, it was recommended that one do the English to French and the other do the French to English, which definitely helped to keep your mind going the right direction. Otherwise, we kept getting mixed up and we had to do both. Okay, that's a good a good point. It's not always possible, but especially in a setting where it was it was an extended time and there were two of us, we would we just depending on which language it needed to be done, we took turns to That's a good good thing to bring up. That the comment was that uh, in some situations where extended translation, interpretation, I get mixed up too, interpretation is needed, it can be advantageous to have two interpreters where one goes, say, from French to English and the other English to French, so they don't have to keep thinking in both directions, which is harder, and when it's a long day, makes it even harder. Or the other option is if, if they like to do it in both directions, you can alternate them in sessions and give them a break. Okay, tips uh, for preparing. I think uh, we've hit a number of these, but uh, one thing that's really beneficial if you can is submit your written talk or your slides in advance. This can be helpful uh, because a lot of times they can translate them, so what's projected is actually in their language, and that will help them understand you and the interpreter better. But uh, it isn't always possible, but when you can. I know a lot of us are you know, preparing as we're about ready to get on the plane or maybe on the plane. But uh, for your trips and uh, times you're teaching like this, if you can, get it there in advance. And even if you have to pay for translation, it can really improve comprehension. And then we already talked about meeting with the interpreter. You want to talk with the interpreter about their background. Uh, if they've had, hopefully they've had your talk and uh, can ask you any questions they have. And if not, you can uh, quickly go over the major points, at least give them the outline of what you want to communicate so they can uh, try to emphasize those even if some of the minor points are uh, lost. And then one thing I find a lot of people don't do is check their slides for readability. Uh, what you see on your computer screen is not always projected well in a classroom. So be sure you have good contrast, you know, like... Uh, White and gray aren't too good on each other. You need to use kind of opposites on the color scheme so and large enough print so that people can see it. Other tips, this already came up about using simple, clear terminology. And uh, it helps if you can use illustrations, different visual aids that will help people to uh, be able to get several inputs. They can, you know, see the the visual part, they can hear the audio part, they can look at the written part or their notes, and that can assist them. Any other tips y'all can think of for preparing well to teach in translation? Okay. Oh, I'm, I have handouts, actually. I'm sorry. I'm passing that so you don't have to write, write so quickly. And then things you want to avoid. We talked about culture-specific jargon like, uh, you know, baseball terms or uh, brands that are unique to your area, something like that. Uh, although, if you've traveled much, most American brands are everywhere these days. So 
they may still understand those. And one thing that often happens is abbreviations and acronyms. In medicine, we're big at using, you know, HPI and all these abbreviations in our writing. But uh, the first time you use it in a presentation in another culture, it's best to spell it out and then put it in parentheses what abbreviation you're going to use. If you need to use it, it's better not to. Uh, busy slides. If you've all seen the one that had, you know, about 20 lines and the, the speaker said, I know you can't read this, but, well, why are you showing it if they can't read it, you know? So <laughs> even in America, that happens all the time. So some of these are not unique to translation. And then small print. Uh, you should always use at least size 24 on uh, PowerPoint. Usually that's large enough. Usually only have four or five bullets, depending on how long they are. Uh, Make a second slide if it's too long. And then giving the presentation, you should look at the audience, not the interpreter. There can be a tendency to always be looking at the interpreter, and then the audience doesn't feel like you're talking to them. You may need to look periodically just to be sure, you know, they're doing okay and they're, uh, you know, giving you a positive uh, feedback as far as their not their body language. Encourage questions at any time. This doesn't work in a lot of cultures for the reasons we talked about, that it's just not considered polite to ask questions. I find younger people are much better at this. They seem to be less stressed about it a lot of times, but it depends a lot on the culture. But at least encourage them to ask and tell them you can uh, also uh, stay after to answer questions if you're able to. And then speaking slowly and clearly, this is a problem I have. I tend to speak really quickly. I'm trying to learn to speak Texan where I live and and they usually say, if you want to sound like a Texan, you got to talk a lot slower than you talk. So <laughs> it even happens in our culture. Yes, you had a, a suggestion, sir. So, um, two, two different things. Uh, one is about never keep your interpreter as the person to work or to show an example with. Okay, not to use your interpreter as your model for an example. Okay, well, that has a couple points. One, don't uh, shock your interpreter or grab them or <laughs> do something like that. Also, interpretation is pretty challenging as it is without them trying to be your example for CPR or whatever, uh, resisting the devil or whatever it is. So use someone from the audience or one of your peers, if you can, to be the example and let the interpreter just be the interpreter. Yes, did you have another one? Around and he does the best translation around and you 
Holy Spirit is interested in getting the right communication. <laughs> and if you put the two, the, you don't rely only on your knowledge and your dominion of the language, and you allow God to help you, this is for translators and interpreters, um, that will help you actually to get the, the, every point across. I had an experience with a, uh, a person from uh, China, uh, and he has been speaking English for about six months, and he came to South America, and he was part of a big team, and I was supposed to translate for him. When the person in charge of the whole team asked me to translate for him, we introduced each other, and I say, what? Anything he was talking, and then and we, we we were just thrown out there in the arena, <laughs> ready to go. And he said, "Hold on a minute, let's go back to this this other room, this office, and let's pray, and believe that God is going to help us for you to speak English that I can understand, and for me to be able to translate, and it worked out wonderfully, absolutely." They say the the whole uh, hour was so easy to understand. Okay, th that was a great example. Uh, just a second, I'll get to you a second. I need to repeat it for the tape. Uh, basically, the uh, discussion was, you know, sometimes you're translating for someone who's already speaking a second language and may not speak it that clearly, so it can be hard to understand them. And particularly when you're both Christians, praying before you uh, go out and relying on the Holy Spirit, God can help you overcome a lot of the barriers. Uh, many times when we're teaching, we're not teaching in a Christian setting, uh, so you may not be able to do it in the same way, but you might be in a setting you can at least say, would you mind if I ask God to help us? And that can be a testimony, too. Yes, you had something. Oh, sorry. The comment was in addition to uh, giving permission to ask questions at any time, pausing periodically and asking if there are questions, and even planting questions in the audience either could be somebody on your team, but you could also just explain that in your culture it's the practice to stop and, and ask questions and uh, ask them to assist you by asking a particular question. That's a, that's a great idea. Any other things we should talk about? Okay. Here's some other things. Uh, defining important terms. You can't always assume that the term we use means the same thing in other cultures. And uh, it's good to tell your translator ahead of time, but also be sure during your presentation to explain what you mean by a, a term. 
even in, in uh, our own language, sometimes people use a term in multiple ways. So uh, that can really improve understanding. Uh, we already talked about avoiding complex grammar and the need sometimes to be sure you give at least enough of a sentence that the translator can translate it. They need to know the verb, for example, uh, in many languages. Uh, using questions to promote active engagement. Uh, there's another talk actually I gave last year, I think, on the benefits of using questions in teaching, and there's a whole literature on that, but using questions promotes the, the engagement of the students to try to think about the answer. And even if they don't answer, uh, it often has a, a lasting effect. So this is particularly useful, I find, in, in teaching things like medical ethics, where you may uh, talk about different systems of ethics and uh, ways they would handle things. And then you can ask questions like, uh, if this were your mother or your child, what would you like to do? And that may cause them to engage new thoughts that may not be part of their system or, uh, you know, sort of open questions that try to force them to engage without being too direct about saying which of these ethical systems is the best, you know. So using questions and getting feedback by questions so you can see if they understood. And then uh, because of the high and low context cultures, the uh, – the high-context cultures usually talk about practical-type things. They're very holistic. They talk about practical parts of life. We tend to be, as low-context people in North America, uh, more abstract, theoretical. You know, we kind of go back to the Greek rational approach. And if you alternate both, you can give the abstract but then give good examples or give examples and then explain what the principles are. That can help no matter what culture you're in. And often, uh, especially these days, you'll be in cultures with multiple uh, students from multiple cultures. A lot, a lot of international medical schools are training people from other countries. So you have some people who the language being translated is a second language for them, and uh, they're from a different cultural background. So the more you can alternate that, that can really help with the understanding. And then, uh, obviously, even in English, you want to repeat and reinforce uh, important points. But if you say the same thing in multiple ways, you're more likely to be understood. And uh, if you can do things besides diagrams, you can sometimes do demonstrations. Like if you're talking about CPR, actually have a dummy there and show them some things uh, or show a video of something happening. But uh, different things that give them different inputs. Also, some people are more audio learners, some are more visual learners, so that can help. And then being as interactive as possible within the culture. And I find uh, usually the first day you have to be pretty lecture-oriented, but as people get to know you, they relax, and uh, maybe the second or third day you can do a workshop where you have them try out the method and give them feedback or have their colleagues give them feedback, and then you give them feedback. So... Uh, you have to kind of grade it from when you're a stranger and they're learning, can they trust you? Do you really want questions? Or are you just saying that and you'll bite their head off like a lot of our mentors did in uh, residency training <laughs> in school? So try to be as interactive as you can. There are, there are some cultures, too, if you're too interactive, they think you're lowering yourself to their level and they lose respect for you. So it's a very complicated thing. You have to... Uh, 
try to feel it out. And then assessing effectiveness. Uh, it is important to watch for the nonverbal behavior. You may not always know what it means. If people are nodding, they may or may not understand. But if they're looking perplexed or they're all talking to each other or looking down or puzzled, probably they're not understanding very well. Uh, the second point we just talked about uh, and sometimes you'll, you'll say something and the interpreter, you might say a short sentence and the interpreter talks for three minutes. Or, you know, you, you say something uh, really long and they just say three or four words. Then probably something is wrong there. <laughs> they may be summarizing, but uh, sometimes that can give you a hint that they may not have understood and you may say it another way and try to be sure that, uh, you know, you're getting the point across. Did somebody have their hand up? Okay. Uh, and then uh, in some cultures, you can use pre- and post-tests. Uh, this isn't too commonly done in a lot of places, but it can give you some feedback. And then uh, requesting feedback itself. Uh, you saw from the case study, there's increasing evidence now that using Likert scales, you know, scales like one to five of how well did it do, that a lot of countries will, uh, what the answer they give you will not reflect how they really feel. And so uh, it's better if you can talk directly with them or their professors in a non-threatening environment, one-on-one -on -one or something like that. There's also a method called appreciative inquiry. I don't know if you've heard of them. I'm thinking of doing uh, some studying on this. But it's a method that it was originally described for strategic planning, but it, it asks for feedback all in positive questions. And uh, the evidence, at least in that environment, is that you get all the same information, but you get more of it because cultures, uh, high-context cultures are more com uh, comfortable with it. Like uh, one of my classmates is from Ethiopia, and she's used it, and it just worked fantastically. And it's been used in many cultures internationally, so there's a lot of evidence it works well, at least in strategic planning, and I don't see why it wouldn't work well in in feedback, but at least hopefully it's a little better. Uh, a, lot, a lot of times it's not culturally appropriate to give you negative feedback. Actually, I, the last part about uh, the last part of the case study I got from a, an East African pastor who was speaking at a conference, and he was talking about how many groups come to his country and how many prayer letters he sees after people go back about uh, you know what a great uh, communicator they were and that sort of thing, and then. He hears his countrymen sitting around saying, I don't understand anything they were talking about. You know, it's just not polite to tell you you didn't do a good job. So uh, just because you get positive, if it's too good to be true, even here it probably is. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Maria. Explain what you mean by positive feedback. Well, a lot of these uh, uh, feedback tests we use, say, on a scale of 1 to 5, from 1 being very bad to 5 being outstanding, uh, how well were the points communicated, how uh, clear was the speaker, uh, how valuable was the presentation. We, we just love that kind of stuff. But a lot of high-context cultures, they're basically it's not hospitable to give you negative feedback. It's like an insult. You're their guest. So they're not going to tell you you didn't do, do well. But in fact, I, did, I did this actually in one country, and we got almost all – fives back, and I thought, this is too good to be true. I mean, this wouldn't even happen in a place you weren't teaching in translation. So you have to be suspicious when you get too good feedback and try to use other techniques. What other techniques? Give me an 
Well, one, I think uh, there's not a lot of evidence in the literature yet. They're starting to use it in, um, in course feedback, but is this appreciative inquiry method where you only ask positive questions. You can say, you know, um, what were the top three points that were made? Uh, what things will you apply in your practice? Uh, if you were going to be the teacher next time, what three things would you add? And that way, they, they don't have to say, you did badly, you didn't give this, but they're kind of telling you what they would have liked to have had in there. So using positive questions that uh, always imply good things rather than criticism, I guess. Being critical is the problem in a lot of cultures. Yeah? That type of question also is bringing out what they remember. Right. Or what it can be useful for feedback, which is part of why you're trying to do it. Uh, you can see what they thought your three important questions were, which may or may not match what you're trying to communicate. Yes. I should have asked this question before, but when you teach in a foreign country, what is the percentage of professional translators? When you're teaching in a foreign country? What is the percentage of professional translators? Because I was not professional. What is the qualification of professional translators? Oh, the percentage. That varies a lot with countries. Actually, I have a, a source that talks about translators in different countries. It only has about 20 countries, but it'll vary with country. But the percentage of professional translators is probably very low. Um, you can usually tell, though, if there are people who translate for major international conferences or for leaders in that country, they're probably professional translators. Personally, I find, though, that the... This, I haven't seen any studies on this, but I find the best translators are people who have a medical background, even if they're not a professional translator, and who are comfortable enough to, you know, talk back and forth, and uh, especially if you can talk ahead of time, and they're, they're relatively comfortable saying, could you say that again, or, you know, could you explain it another way if during the presentation there's a problem. But... Uh, it's a major issue because a lot of times translators are provided for you and you have no say. Uh, that situation where somebody was translating with no medical background actually happened to me at a conference and uh, the audience actually was yelling out the medical words because they're often similar, but I don't think we got too much across really. It's, it's very hard to do sort of tag team translation. So if you have any input, I would encourage you to ask for medical people who are bilingual and have some experience in doing it. Yeah? It would be good also to give a, an assessment of the translator. Yeah. That could be part of your appreciative inquiry or your post-test. You know, uh, it's sometimes hard to think of how to say it positively, but think of a way to ask positively uh, about the translator. And if you go recurrently, then you can try to... Uh, adjust who are your translators. And I think you can see from the hands that were raised early, a lot of you have been translators probably because you have the medical background as well as both languages. Yes, somebody over here had a point? Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> Don't want to leave anybody out, but <laughs> thought I saw something out of the corner of my eye. Oh, sorry. We've got to finish off. And this is just, uh, you know, if somebody gives a really long talk and, uh, and it's a short translation or vice versa. That can be a bad sign. So we've really come to the, sorry, I missed my time by five minutes, but these are the kinds of things we were talking about that, 
you know, this is an increasing need that we can do some simple things that aren't rocket scientists, uh, science to try to improve our uh, interpretation. See, I shouldn't have said rocket science, probably for some countries. They don't have rockets. Uh, and uh, it's better to have people who have a medical background and try to assess as best as you can the audience. John? I was just thinking uh, perhaps even this could be taught to our residents. Yeah, that's another point. Even here we should teach it. And I didn't bring this up, but I've also done research on, uh, you know, it's required to have medical translators in North America or at least have them available now if the person doesn't speak your language. And only, I think it was like 20% of residents are taught how to use medical translators. And they're taught how to get them, but they're not taught how to use them. So we can use it. So thanks very much. I'd be glad to stay. And uh, if you want to look at the books too, you're welcome to come. Thank you.